to conclude the this part of the series where I look at a necessary end I just wanted to put out a, a special kind of bonus sort of episode with um, one of the stories in full really one that I've not discussed um, I touched on it in the last episode but you know reasons reasons being that this story never really wasn't really planned to exist in um, a necessary end it wasn't in House of Courtney it wasn't in Black Gang um, it wasn't written with any kind of purpose to be involved in it it was a, a story that I purposely written for another book um, not one of mine necessarily it was um, one of my previous publishers um, called Creativia at the time uh, a few of the authors came up with an idea for an anthology um, and I, I, I even though I, I kind of I've dabbled in the anthology kind of you know thing with House of Courtney and that by that point I um, I, I wanted the challenge of writing something to a brief I suppose it was the first time that I'd written to a prompt and you know I, I found it quite exciting you know it, it's something that you know a starting point almost that wasn't mine um, so the, the book as it turned out was called Once Upon a Broken Dream and all the stories written for that anthology were written by fellow authors under Creativia and they're all written to the same brief they had to be based around or written to include um, a particular line or a variation of a line um, which you had to incorporate into your story um, which was if I remember rightly something along the lines of um, her life was not a fairy tale there was no prince no talking animals um, no happily ever after that kind of thing it's it's a very broad way of way of thinking about starting the, the creative process and I, I'd not done it before and I, I I thought on it for a little bit but it was a story came to me um, during this this first family holiday to the Isle of Wight oddly enough so when I came to putting together a necessary end and obviously this as we've seen in the last few episodes this real influence that Black Gang and this family trip had had on the writing of, of the Black Gang book I felt the need to incorporate this story into that book into a necessary end as well like I said in the last episode it was just a way for me to include a, a, something else that I'd done that I hadn't included in any of my other releases and so I kept it in its original form pretty much the only thing I did was I changed the family name to Courtney so in doing so I, I made this story the final piece the, the final part of a necessary end is detached from the Zach Charlie F Courtney and the Tricker Jack um, thread completely the only way I tied it in was with that family name I wanted to to imagine that probably this story had its place within the Courtney family line and that actually even though we all thought Ryan and, and Ephraim Courtney were the last surviving descendants there there may have been elements of this curse still in play with another distant part of that family tree so the story itself is called the ginger man um, it's not about a red-headed man <laughs> it's uh, 
it's a play on the gingerbread man um the inspiration very much came from my from my daughter at the time she had she she had this christmas dress this christmas outfit i think the year before and with it came this this little um cuddly gingerbread man and at the time she had a real sort of attachment to it she wouldn't go anywhere without it for a, a certain amount of time and it was on this this family trip uh, this this drive from where we live in Newton Abbott up to Portsmouth um, certain things happened on that journey that that were fed into this story um, even things like we we had to be diverted from the main road you know we were we left ourselves a very tight window to to do the journey to Portsmouth and there was this big inconvenience which really led to a few heated arguments between uh, my wife and I you know our frustrations coming to the fore and I, I this story the ginger man starts off in this very normal family setting with this family that is mirroring our trip so I've referenced the things the the um, inconveniences like the diversion because of an accident um, the little girl needing the toilet you know halfway um, through the journey where there's really not any time to spare and all that I, I fed all that in what happened the, the the family as they are at the start of the story is very much mirrored the way that we you know our our trip it's the if the the normal sort of strained family trip that can be with all these things going wrong that's really where the similarity did end but I took this idea that then like in a lot of my stories some tragedy befalls the family um, they're attacked they they make a, a stop in a um, services and they they unwittingly stumble across a, a situation occurring in like the um, the shop at the the service station they pulled off in where there's a robbery in play um, behind shuttered doors you know they're not to know what's going on inside the shop but there's a there's a group of guys who are in the process of of robbing and terrorizing the uh, the shopkeeper um and with their presence there they're seen as a bit of a a bit of a challenge a bit of an inconvenience as well to the robbers and they unfortunately attack this little girl's parents not knowing that the little girl was in the car at the time so it's it's the trauma i this all came to me we i think we did um, stop off at somewhere that mirrored exactly the the service place that I described in the um, in this story, and it just occurred to me then what horrific thing could happen there if you're there with no one else around. What could happen in these places without anybody knowing? You know, there's cars speeding by. A lot of these service places are they're not directly on the side of the main road. You know, they're they're sort of set back from the main road you know if you're there at the wrong time things can happen nobody would really know so these guys they they take their chance to try and cover their tracks what they think they're doing is is you know making sure there's no witnesses left so they commit atrocious acts against their parents and then realize that this little girl's in the back of the car and they flee leaving the little girl on her own and my my thinking was what what could be going through that child's mind if if they have somehow witnessed what's happened to her parents powerless to stop it she's only sort of three three years old two or three years old i think strapped in a car seat 
really confused, scared, left alone, left alone for who knows how long before the police get there. Her only attachment, her only friend at the time is this little cuddly gingerbread man. Um, so that is the ginger man. The reason it's called the ginger man and not the gingerbread man is obviously for obvious reasons. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to look like I was ripping off the classic tale, but also it's, um, our little girl referred to it as the ginger man. I, I, she couldn't really say the gingerbread man. She called it the ginger man. Um, so it was really then about what happens to that little girl. Um, it's a, it is my probably my only bona fide short story. It's it's a very short one. Um, I didn't want it to be full of gratuitous violence. Now it's really the creep factor, the the trauma and the creepiness of what happens afterwards so so what ends up happening or, or wh where the, the story ends up my main vision for the story after that was it was the girl's attachment to this gingerbread man um becoming her only friend in such a time of despair at such a young age but also that there was something paranormal something supernatural tied to this figure the ginger man um, think of it as my I guess my own take on something like child's play like um, you know the, the the possessed toy kind of thing but I see what you think it's not it's not a story I don't think that is that well known out of everything I've done um, because it like I say it appeared in a in an anthology that I, I didn't really um, promote or anything like I didn't have any hand in putting together except for writing the story um, it's not one I've really talked about all that much. It's it can be it's probably got one of the scenes that is is the most harrowing in there. Um, you know, taking the brutality of the moment away from it, I think one of the subject matters I touch on is probably one of the darkest ones that I've done before. Mainly because it is a very real problem, a very real um, horrific situation. Um, so yeah um it is what it is really um some people can be quite shocked by it um it has come with a disclaimer on a couple of places it's been shared on so uh you know go in with an open mind um but, but here it is you see what you think this is um like i say this is this is the final part of a necessary end i'm sharing it in full um really just because i'm not giving anything away necessarily on what else goes on in a necessary end but i just wanted to share sort of be able to share some kind of complete work with you so yeah this is uh, this is the ginger man enjoy declan courtney pushed his foot down a little harder on the accelerator mindful of not letting his speed creep high enough that his wife grace would notice that he was doing several miles over the limit they were running late he knew that they would be it happened every time he glanced in the rearview mirror and watched his little girl sleep just for a second. It brought a smile to his face. She always exuded peace whenever she slept, calming him. Grace looked into the back of the car at the same moment, the proud parents sharing a momentary smile as Declan returned his gaze to the road ahead. It was mid-morning, the sun now high above the trees and spraying its warmth through the windshield. Beads of sweat formed on Declan's brow, but not a reaction to the warmth of the day alone. His heart was racing and his body began to chill as he looked down at the clock on the dash. They were so late. 
He had bundled his little family in the car in good time that morning, pleased that he had chosen to pack the cases and bags into the boot the night before. But the wretched road closure the wrong side of Axminster had forced them to take an unannounced detour through tight lanes. They got no further than half a mile through the village when the traffic stopped dead in front of them. The single-track lane was not designed to take that volume of traffic at one time, trying to force past each other in two directions. Overall, the diversion and subsequent jam had cost them nearly an hour. The race was now on to get to the ferry port, still some eighty-odd miles away and with only an hour and a half to get there. The only other thing he was thankful for, however, was that Eleonora had spent most of the journey asleep so far. Car journeys were always like a spin on the wheel of fortune. They could never predict just how many times they would have to stop for Ellie's impromptu toilet breaks, many of them false alarms. But so far, so good. As soon as Declan was able to pull back onto the main road, he made up for lost time. They were now on the M27 bound for Portsmouth, the final stretch. It's sixty, love, Grace informed him. No, we're on a motorway. National means seventy, he replied brusquely, but with a smile. Even so, you're doing eighty, his wife replied. She always had to have the last word. It infuriated him only for a second before he realized that he no longer had an argument. Haven't got time to hang around now, thanks to them back there. Declan had no idea what had caused the road closure whether it was an accident that had ended in injury or fatality, but without the facts, he decided that he was not obliged to care. It had been an inconvenience, and that was that. Declan viewed the next marker board on the side of the motorway, trying to quickly calculate roughly how many minutes they had left to cover the rest of the miles. He had managed to pick up another five minutes, so decided that his speed had been justified. It was a small victory. I need a wee, came the sweet monotone voice from the back of the car. Declan closed his eyes and squeezed the top of the steering wheel, frustrated once more. Grace looked at him, stifling a smile. She always said he was doubly cute when he was stressed. Grace turned in her seat and reached behind her, putting a hand on her daughter's leg. Okay, sweetie. We will stop in a few minutes at the next services. Can you hold it for me? The little girl nodded, causing the dark curls that framed her cherub-like face to bounce. Grace glanced at her husband as she turned back around, placing a hand on his as it rested on the gear stick. Declan was bristling, and he knew that she could feel it too. It'll only be quick, she said quietly, leaning towards him. I promise, we can't make her wait. Declan gave a single nod, looking once more into the rear-view mirror. Ellie smiled sweetly back at him, washing away the anger. He smiled back to her. Within another mile, he followed the next exit towards the final service stop before Southampton. The service stop didn't hold all of the luxuries of many. This one held merely a fuel station and a couple of large gravel car parks, with a sprawling playing field running behind. Without the luxury of an enclosed toilet, Grace brought the travel party out of the backpack and set it on the ground next to the car. Declan sat at the wheel, the anxiety rising in him as he glanced at his watch every few seconds. He heard one of the rear doors open again and looked back sharply. 
Grace lifted her eyebrows and shook her head with a smile as she grabbed the small knitted gingerbread man from Ellie's car seat. Despite all of the money that they had spent in her three years on countless toys, she never let go of the small cuddly toy that came free with her Christmas dress from a few months before. A couple of minutes later, Grace buckled her daughter back into the car seat and Declan's hand turned the key even before his wife had settled into her seat. Ah, bugger, she said. I forgot to get rid of this. She held up the used baggie from the travel party and asked silently with her eyes for Declan to take it. He tottered as he took it and heaved himself from the car. He could feel their holiday steadily slipping away. He stood for a moment and swept his gaze around the car parks, noticing the single red metal bin at the far side of the car park. His feet crunched over the gravel as he stomped towards it. Within a few feet of the bin, he tossed the bag into the bin. The rush of speeding traffic from the motorway had masked the sudden commotion around where his car stood. It wasn't until he was on the other side of the hedge that separated the car parks that he saw the group of darkly clad men that surrounded his car. Two steps closer, and he heard Grace's cries. With his final step, everything went black. There were four of them, all dressed in black jeans and hooded tops. They had been in the empty kiosk shop when the Courtney's had arrived. The leader of the group, the smallest of the lot, had been busy tying up the store clerk in the small storeroom out the back when one of the others had alerted him to their uninvited guests. Tightening the gag around the clerk's mouth and landing a fist heavily across his temple, the leader stomped to the front of the store and peered through the blinds on the door. They waited, watching their every movement. The family were about to leave when suddenly they presented the villainous team with a fresh challenge. Declan left the car and took a stroll across the wide car parks, leaving his luscious wife alone. Or so they thought. There were no words, no questions asked and no answers given to what happened next. He led his band of minions out of the shop towards the car. Three of them surrounded each side of the vehicle as the leader rushed to Grace's side and threw open the door. Grace, who had been oblivious to the group's arrival as she reached behind to tighten Ellie's harness, did not have time to scream as the leader grabbed her hair and covered her mouth. She was pulled from the car, her legs dragging across the gravel, the skin taken from her knees before she was brought to her feet and then thrown onto her front across the bonnet of the car. The leader stood behind her commanding two of his minions to hold her in place as he loosened his belt and undid his fly. Bingo, he said through his heavy breath. Grace was wearing a skirt, thus speeding up the process. One of the leader's hands reached between her legs and tore down her underwear, and with one thrust he was inside her. She screamed. He howled in delight as he started to invade her body. No! Please, please! Grace screamed. It did no good. Hey, boss, we got company! The third henchman called. As the tallest of the group, this man could see over the car. Declan had started to return back to his family, but Grace's sudden scream had alerted him. He now started to move more quickly. Deal with him! The leader grunted. The tall man left his post immediately and crossed behind the car, parallel to the path Declan was taking. A couple of strides later and he had crept up behind Declan, 
One of the tall man's gangly arms shot towards the sky, the iron bar in his fist glinting against the sun before it was brought down against Declan's head. There was a sickening crunch as the blow broke his skull. Declan fell limply to the ground, his body twitching. The tall man grabbed at the dying man's shirt collar and dragged his body through the dusty ground, dumping him next to the car. Easy, he declared to the leader upon his return. The leader continued to pound away at Grace as he held up a fist towards the tall man, a gesture of their triumph. Grace's head was forced to look in the direction of her now-dead husband, causing fresh screams. The sound of her struggle, of her horror, drove the leader to the point of no return. With a few final gyrations, he groaned as his body tensed and began to shudder. Then his movements ceased, his face drawn in a sickly grin. His chest heaved as he tried to regain his breath. Finish her, too, he shouted towards the tall man, throwing Gray's face first to the ground. The tall man stepped towards her battered body and brought the bloodied bar down across her back, her shoulders, her head. Three blows and it was all over, all in the time it took the leader to secure the belt around his jeans once more. The four men exchanged high fives, whooping with each slap. The two whose job had been to hold Grace across the bonnet walked around the car, cupping their eyes as they stared in through the windows, surveying their next getaway. Oh, shit, one of the smaller men said as he looked through the car window. Boss, he yelled. The leader crossed to him, agitated, following the direction of the henchman's finger as he pointed at the glass. He grabbed the handle and tore open the door to find Ellie, trembling violently in her seat. Her face now ashen, her tiny innocent eyes wide. She stared ahead towards the windscreen. Her breath shallowed. Her nostrils flared with each attempt to suck in more air. Shit, the leader said as he stood frozen, a new form of reality now finding its place in his mind. His body ran cold as the child turned her head towards him. Then she screamed. Indecipherable words spilt from her mouth as she fought to breathe, to speak. In one final act of cowardice, the group of darkly clad men ran leaving little Ellie to scream and sob to herself. Even at only three years old, Ellie knew that everything she had just witnessed was wrong. She had no idea what had truly just happened, only that it had caused her mummy pain. It had caused her to cry. These mean men, whoever they were, came out of nowhere and had grabbed her mummy, had hurt her, then thrown her to the ground. She had witnessed the rape, saw her mother's terrified eyes and heard her muffled screams as she lay pinned to the front of the car. The shock quickly took hold, freezing her in her seat. She was trapped, unable to breathe, unable to do anything. Where was her daddy, too? Why had he left them and not returned? He would be back soon, she told herself. As soon as the first scream left her body, it was like a dam had been broken. There was no stopping it. The world around her disappeared as she lost herself to the output of the terror she had been forced to witness. She grew tired very quickly, but no one came. Her cries soon dried up, leaving her chest sore and her eyes puffy. 
She sniffed, unable to make another sound. The hours passed and darkness descended. But nobody came. The car door beside her had been left open, letting the chill of the evening air drift in and encase itself around her. She started to shiver. Ellie had never coped well with the dark. Her nightlight still had to be left on, for every time she woke she felt the shadows in her bedroom touching her. Now coupled with the cool night breeze, she felt them even more. She imagined long, dark, bony fingers trailing over her. Through it all, Ellie still had hold of the only thing that brought her comfort. The small, soft toy in her hand. Her ginger man. She squeezed it tighter, brought it to her face and hugged it close. Her tears soaked into his woolen body. Please don't leave me, she sobbed. The new burst of tears lasted only a fraction of the time before sleep took hold. She didn't dream. It felt as though she had only closed her eyes for a few moments, staring into the darkness, her mind finally numbed by the nothingness that it brought. But in truth, she lay asleep for over four hours as the night drew in. As her mind finally awoke, she thought she was at home on Christmas Day, gazing at the twinkling lights on the tinsel-laden tree. But the colors grew and swirled before her, before they began to form new shapes. Soon her vision was filled with flashing shades of red and blue against a black background. Whispers danced all around her, growing louder. The haze finally lifted as she prized her eyes open. Ellie felt her body shake gently, but somehow knew that someone was shaking her. Sir, she's waking up, shouted a woman. Ellie looked into the direction of the voice, just below where she still sat strapped into her car seat, and the policewoman's blonde cropped hair began to appear more clearly. The features of her face followed. The little girl immediately panicked, shouted out for her mummy, her head thrashing side to side as she sought her parents. The friendly police officer touched her hands, calming her just a little. Then it all flooded back to her. The horror that she had been subject to. The terrified look in the whites of her mother's eyes as she was abused and beaten by the cruel gang in black clothing. Ellie screamed, her mouth unable to form any coherent words. Her parents had always been so proud of how her speech had come along considering Ellie's age. But at that moment, words failed her. P.C. Juliana Selby reached for her, trying desperately to calm her down. The true shock was yet to set into the little girl's mind, and she needed to keep her under control the best she could. The scene had turned her stomach the moment she got out of the patrol car. The blood had not yet dried on the concrete, and still existed in thick smears on the ground, trickling to form neat pools around the front tires of the car. Both bodies lay face down. Their faces were largely untouched, but the vicious assaults had taken chunks out of their backs. Declan Courtney's skull had been caved in from behind, his hair now matted with the dried blood and brain matter. Thankfully, she had noticed the child in the back seat almost immediately, her discovery aided by the open rear door. She had found Ellie asleep, although for many frantic moments she thought her to be dead. Her skin was deathly pale, her skin icy cold. But as she knelt before her, she could hear her faint breathing. 
Miss Selby had let her fellow officers clear up the mess behind her, whilst she tried to gently rouse Ellie from her grief-stricken slumber. When it had finally worked, a rush of relief coursed through her, met only with fresh panic when Ellie started thrashing out. She had to be careful to steady Ellie's heart rate, for there was no telling what damage had already been done to her on the inside. There was no physical sign of harm or struggle, at least the bastards who had butchered her parents had thought enough to spare her little life. Ellie's ordeal would have surely damaged her mind. Selby looked over her shoulder towards her sergeant, silently asking for help or reassurance. It was only her second week with the force. Get her out of there, the mustachioed chief shouted. Selby nodded, her hands wrestling with the buckles. As soon as the harness was released, she gently grabbed hold of the child and pulled her from the car. Ellie immediately wrapped herself around Selby, her legs circling her waist and her arms around her neck. Selby put her hand around and rested on one of Ellie's shoulders, quietly shushing her. Ellie's little body relaxed at last, as Selby carried her away from the carnage, taking care to keep her head pressed close against her so as not to catch a glimpse of her parents. Selby carried her from the car park and sat in the warmth of the awaiting patrol car, which waited in the nearby fuel station. As soon as Selby pulled away from her, Ellie began frantically searching her hands, her lap, and her tiny pockets. What's the matter, dear? Selby asked. There was no answer. Ellie simply continued checking everywhere around her, growing more upset with each passing moment. Selby knelt before her touched her hand and asked again. Slow down, she told her. Tell me what's wrong. My ginger man, Ellie sniffed, still looking around and even casting a look behind Selby over her shoulder. My ginger man, she said again as a sob caught in her throat. He's gone. Selby got one of the other males to sit with Ellie as she returned to the car trying to look for the child's lost toy, but at the same time having no idea what she was looking for. At least he couldn't have gone far, Selby thought, since the child had not moved from her car seat. Selby returned to the car and checked the back seat. Nothing. She docked down and searched the footwell below where Ellie had been sat, reaching under the front passenger seat, too. Nothing. She returned to the patrol car, dismissed the other officer and knelt in front of Ellie once more and shook her head. I'm sorry, sweetie. I couldn't find him. Ellie's body shook as she sobbed again, her cheeks and top lip now coated with a sheen of salty tears and snot. Selby reached for the little girl and held her close, whispering to her. I will find him. I promise. P.C. Selby took Ellie back to the station with her that night and made her a bed on the sofa in one of the consultation rooms. She sat in the corner of the room for the rest of the night, giving in to short doses here and there, but mostly just watching the child sleep. She tried to fathom what she must have seen, what would be left of her sanity in a few weeks when the shock and fatigue would have lifted and reality started to set in. The next day, Ellie was moved to a safe house a large property near Stony Cross, in the heart of the New Forest. Two nuns resided there, whose job it was to care for children of all ages that had been subjected to abuse, abandonment, or loss. 
children that just needed somewhere that sheltered them from harm. Crittenden Hall was largely unknown to the general public. The authorities kept it going and maintained its secrecy, as it was a valuable resource for them. Within the walls of the mansion, they could ensure that the most vulnerable of witnesses could be protected whilst they tried to find the perpetrators of whatever crime had robbed them of their innocence. For weeks, Ellie did not sleep. Her eyes closed during the night, but she did not rest. Despite the constant company from the nuns and the other nine children currently in residence there, she felt alone. Even at such a young age, she felt betrayed by those around her. She did not speak, but did not protest when the nuns moved her from her bedroom to the common room. She even joined in with the other children, playing with the abundance of toys at their disposal. But as the sisters observed, she would only seem at peace when playing alone, away from the others. They would watch her for almost an hour sometimes, marveling at the depth of her imagination, wondering what scenes were going through her growing mind that were brought to life through her hands as she moved the dolls, plastic animals, and dinosaurs around the carpet. Sister Abigail, however, voiced concerns after the first month of Ellie's residence. In a sense, she was very much like the other children that passed through there. Her life was not a fairy tale. There was no prince, no talking animals. No happily ever after. But in many of the others there, hidden beneath their grief, their fears, was hope. But there was something about Ellie, something a lot more disconcerting. One day, she had watched her in the playroom as she played with a small army of Lego men. Her play was innocent enough to begin with, so Sister Abigail left her for a short while while she attended to two of the other older boys who were locked in a playful wrestling match, one refusing to let the other out of a very tight headlock. When she returned to Ellie, she was horrified to find all of the Lego men had been dismembered. Their heads, hands, arms, torsos, and legs had all been removed from one another and now lie in neat piles. Ellie had by at that point even moved on to lining the body parts up in their groups, arranging them by color. The sight was worrisome enough, but the sound emanating from Ellie's mouth was most disturbing of all. She was laughing, quietly and very deliberately, laughing. They won't misbehave anymore, she told Sister Abigail without turning around to face her. Ellie's voice lacked tone lacked any emotion at all. As Sister Abigail took a step closer to observe the macabre display, she noticed a group of four yellow plastic men that had somehow escaped the torture of their friends. Their bodies remained intact but piled upon each other as if enkindling on a campfire. What are those? Sister Abigail asked, pointing a crooked finger towards the small group of still whole Lego men. They're next. Ellie said coldly. They haven't found them yet. With that, Ellie's head slowly turned to face the nun. Her eyes, which had previously been a warm autumnal brown, now shone an icy blue. Sister Abigail brought a hand to her mouth as she trembled and stumbled backwards out of the room. She ran down the hall in search of her fellow sister, feeling the sudden need to hide. Later that night, a call came through to Crittenden Hall. It was Sergeant Carter from the local police, 
requesting that he and one of his officers call round with some urgent news. Carter arrived at the house within the hour, with P.C. Selby at his side. Sister Beatrice took them through to the main office, buried deep in the rear of the building. As they walked past the small bedrooms, P.C. Selby paused at one and looked in, seeing the familiar trail of thick dark curls above the pink duvet cover. Ellie lay on her side, her back to the door. She looked asleep, but somehow P.C. Selby knew that she wasn't. The young officer's thoughts were interrupted as the elder sister urged them to continue down to the office. Once inside, she closed the door behind them. Sister Beatrice took her seat behind the simple wooden desk, and then Carter and Selby took theirs opposite her. What is this about? the sister asked. It's about Ellie. We believe we found the men who murdered her parents, Carter said plainly. Sister Beatrice was shocked by how casually the words tumbled from his mouth, and for a moment did not know how to respond. I see, she said. And you have them in your custody, I trust? Carter and Selby exchanged a troubled look before the sergeant turned and addressed the nun once more. Not quite. They are dead. Sister Beatrice sat back in her chair, the shock evident against her face, her mouth dropping open. She crossed herself and rested her hands, fingers locked together on the table, bowing her head in a quick, silent prayer. All of them? she asked without looking up. That's right, Carter replied. We found their van no more than ten miles from the services where the murders took place, pulled over on the side of a track that ran away from the main road. Lights were still on, the engine was running. But inside, all of them were dead. All of their eyes had been removed. The description caused Sister Beatrice to spring from her chair, clasp her hand over her mouth and wave the other towards the officers. Spare me the details, Mr. Carter. You know I do not have a strong stomach. There's more, P.C. Selby said as she stood up to offer a hand to the shaken sister. On the seat of the van, we found this, she said, reaching into the deep pocket of her coat. From it, she took out a small woolen object, a child's toy. Although she had never seen it, P.C. Selby and Sister Beatrice knew exactly what it was. Since her arrival at Crittenden Hall, much like the night that P.C. Selby found her when Ellie had spoken, the only thing she had constantly talked about was her ginger man. The nun took the knitted toy from Selby's hands and stared at it. Suddenly its woven smile looked malevolent, cruel. Sister Beatrice closed her eyes, repulsed by it, and thrust it back towards P.C. Selby. No, no, you take it. Get it away from me. Selby and Carter looked at each other, confused. Please excuse me, Sister Beatrice told them as she hurried to the door. Please see yourselves out. By the time Selby got to the door to look after the troubled old woman, she had gone. Many doors were leading off to the dimly lit hallway, too many for Selby to guess behind which Sister Abigail now hid behind. What was that all about? Selby asked, still searching the shadows down the hall. Goes me, Carter shrugged as he stood from his chair. Now let's get out of here. There's a hell of a mess to clear up back at the station and it's getting late. Carter pushed past Selby and walked briskly down the hall, 
I'll see you back at the car, he called back to her. Selby paused for a moment longer than made her exit too. As she walked down past the line of bedrooms, she stopped at the only one still with an open door. She peered inside and slowly walked towards the bed. Ellie hadn't moved a muscle since she spied her earlier. She exuded peace, but something else started creeping in Selby's gut as she looked down upon the angelic little girl. Something nibbled at her from within, a cold gnawing deep inside her. Fear. Selby gently reached over the sleeping child and tucked the woolen gingerbread man between Ellie's arms. The toy's face smiled back at her, emptily. As P.C. Selby left Crittenden Hall by the large front door and walked back to where the patrol car waited, its engine humming quietly, she stopped and looked back behind her sharply, convinced that she could hear a voice. She strained her ears to listen again but heard only the wind. She got back into the car and spent the ride back to the police station in a haze of troubled thought. Something didn't feel right. She closed her eyes and heard the voices again, this time more clearly. Run, run, as fast as you can. You'll never escape me. I'm the ginger man. Her eyes snapped open again and she drew in a strangled breath. Jeez, Selby! Carter shouted as he struggled to get control of the steering wheel again. What the hell was that? You scared the jeepers out of me. I'm sorry, sir, Selby replied. I don't know what came over me. Her eyes darted from side to side. She immediately looked out of the window into the deepening darkness. Back at Crittenden Hall, Ellie finally slept like a baby. He was home and was never leaving her again. The End the sound samples used in this episode are from the audiobook version of A Necessary End, narrated by Dave Jackson, and is available for download on Audible and Amazon. If you like what you hear, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out the audiobook, as well as the ebook and paperback copies of A Necessary End, also available through Amazon and all good bookstores online. <laughs> Hee <laughs>